I wonder if you've uh, ever heard the phrase, the wrong side of the tracks. Someone comes from the wrong side of the tracks, the bad side of town. Apparently that's like a, it's, I'm going to use the word properly, that's a literal thing. Uh, it's, it's a literal thing, it, and it's, I, I was wondering where the phrase came from, what the origin of it was, so I did a little bit of research. Now when I say research, I mean like, hey, what does Wikipedia say? So, um, so not extensive. But this is what I found. Actually, I looked at a couple different sources. There are some differing opinions, but, but this is what seems to make the most sense to me. Throughout the middle of the 19th century, from kind of the 1830s on, as towns all across across America in particular, but North America in general, were being built, the railway obviously played a key part of how goods and services, how everything was brought into the town. It was a key part of the infrastructure of the cities. If a city was going to thrive, it needed to have a train station. That train station was typically in the middle of the city. And the train tracks, bringing all the goods into the middle of the town, would divide the town really from one side and the other. Now, here's what happens. Because winds typically flow in one direction, they typically blow in one direction predominantly, what happens is when your trains are powered by steam and there's coal and soot and all the natural that comes with that, along with all the noise pollution and everything like that, all of that all blows onto one side of town. Now, what happens then is the property values go down. When property values go down, that part of town becomes economically depressed, which leads to generational poverty, which leads to increase in crime, and on and on you go. You have the wrong side of the tracks. But bottom line is, you have a side of the tracks where people come from, and we're like, we're from the right side, and they're from the wrong side. We're from the clean, I don't know why, this side apparently is the clean side. You guys are the dirty side, I don't know why. We come from the clean side, we're, we're the dirty side, I don't know, however it works, but for whatever, for however it's divided, this is how it happens. We're the good ones, they're the bad ones ones. What's happening in our passage in Matthew 15 is Jesus is journeying not to the wrong side of the tracks but to the wrong side of the sea. From the one side of the Sea of Galilee where he was surrounded by Jewish people, where he was ministering to Jewish crowds, to the wrong side of the sea where the Gentiles live. The, the one time he's come over here so far, he ran into, do you remember there were two demon-possessed men? And they were possessed by a legion of demons. They were so unclean. They were living in the tombs. They were pig farmers. Everything was unclean about this region, the Decapolis region. Now Jesus is coming back again. And the question for us as we approach this text, this part of Jesus' life and ministry, is what happens when Jesus shows up on the wrong side of the sea? How will people respond? What will he do with them? Well, the first thing we see is this. When the hurting taste his power, they glorify the God of Israel. When the hurting taste of his power, they glorify the God of Israel, even if they're from the wrong side of the sea. Look at how our story starts. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him. Great crowds, I love this. Where did all these people come from? Where do these great crowds come? Well, it could be that some of the people from this side of the sea had traveled to the other side of the sea and met some Jewish people and heard stories about Jesus. Or it could be that the two demon-possessed men from chapter 8 had gone and told other people what Jesus had done for them, and now people knew about him. They believed in Jesus. Or it could be that the woman who was just having her daughter healed, who had the demon cast out in the immediate verses before this, went and told everyone what Jesus had done 
for her. And I think it's probably a combination of those, but leaning in on the last one. This, this seems to make sense of the timing. So Jesus, with a word, casts out the demon from a distance, and then he's like, okay, let's go up the mountain, as if he's waiting. Okay, they're going to come now. So he goes up the mountain and sits down and waits, and sure enough, now the crowds begin to come. And they're bringing these people, they're bringing them, and they're laying them down at Jesus' feet. Verse 30, they're bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. And he healed them. I, I love the two parts of that phrase. They put him at his feet. They're laying him before Jesus to see what, what will Jesus do. He has the power. Does he have the compassion? Does he have the will? Will he heal? They lay him at Jesus' feet. Jesus, you are Lord. You do what you see fit. And Jesus healed them. This is precious. This is beautiful. See, don't, don't miss the hurt of this for the simple display of power. So there's a power. Jesus is power. He is able to heal. But think about the human experience of those who are coming. Those who are lame and crippled. Their bodies don't work. They're blind. They're mute. Their senses don't work. So, so there's the immediate suffering, the surface level suffering of simply the reality of having to live in a body that's broken. That's a unique kind of hurt. But then along with that comes the isolation of becoming an outcast in your own society, of, of being dependent on the mercy and the help of others, always needing others to serve you and care for you. There's the inability for you to, with any, to, to live with any kind of dignity, to provide for yourself, to work for yourself. All of these things, they are lacking in dignity. They are isolated. They are impoverished. All of it comes. All of these things, these experiences come with the simple reality that their bodies are broken. Here are people who are hurting. See, Jews are afraid to go in amongst the Gentiles because they're unclean. And they are. They're, they are legitimately unclean according to Jewish law. And we often are afraid to go in amongst the unclean of our world as well because they are legitimately unclean. Paul says in Ephesians, he says sometimes it's, it's not even right to speak of the things that they do in the darkness. There is an uncleanness to the way the world lives. And yet, even with the uncleanness, there is brokenness. There is hurting and Jesus heals. Verse 31, so the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Here, here's the reality. Hurting people need a healer with power. And that is exactly what Jesus is. There's only one of those on either side of the tracks, either side of the sea, no matter where you come from, no matter how clean or unclean you think you are, there's only one with the power to heal and so they glorified the God of Israel. What would that glorifying sound like? When you're reading your Bible, do you, do you ever pause and ask, I wonder what that sounded like? <laughs> I mean, I was thinking this week about what it would be like to be with you and to hear you sing over me, and I thank God for it. 
What would it sound like if you had a crowd of people who had been living in this oppressive brokenness with these hurts, these wounds, these incurable realities in their life, and all of a sudden, in an instant, what they thought could never be healed is healed? What, what, what would their response be? What would it sound like? What kind of noises would they be making? This is a crazy ruckus that they would be making. They are glorifying the God of Israel. The Gentiles are glorifying the God of Israel. This is incredible. Remember the, the great faith of the woman that we saw last week? She believed in the promise to Abraham that as God blessed Abraham, there'd be an overflowing of blessing to the nations. They're seeing this in Jesus and glorifying the God of Israel. See, they're, they're not fundamentally rejoicing here because their lives got better, although that is true they're rejoicing that the king of Israel has come, and that means blessing for the world, including them. This is so much bigger than any one of them individually. It tells us that there is hope, and there is help, there is healing for the hurting. We, likewise, have hope. See, if we, if we scope out, if we scale back for a minute from our own tiny myopic vision of the world where it's like, I'm, I'm clean and the people over there are unclean, here's the reality. Before God who is holy, 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 this whole world is the other side of the tracks. But the whole mission of Jesus to take on flesh and to come and to live amongst us, to dwell amongst us, to suffer in our place, to not simply heal and remain unaffected, but, but to, to take our sins in his own body and to die in our place. He came to heal us, not simply of the outward manifestations in our body, but of the sin that brings death to our very souls. When the hurting the broken, those with incurable realities in our hearts, when we experience, when we taste of his power, we glorify God. Have you done that? Jesus, Jesus is off to a great start. This is amazing. What else do we see here as Jesus comes to the wrong side of the sea? Second thing we see is this. When the hungry taste his provision, they are satisfied. And we come to this story of the crowds being satisfied. This time it's 4,000. Just if, if you're like, man, this seems crazy. It seems like the preacher's repeating himself. Well, Matthew, the gospel writer, is repeating himself. Just last chapter we read about the feeding of 5,000. And you might well ask yourself, why? Of all the things Jesus did over the course of his life, why would you repeat two stories that sound almost identical? What's the point of repetition here? Sometimes repetition is given because you don't understand the lesson the first time. Sometimes repetition is to develop something that you're starting to understand, but you haven't quite got your head around yet. So here's how this works. Jesus, in the last chapter, performing miracles among Jewish people, Jewish crowds, and then feeding thousands, miraculously. Here, Jesus, likewise, healing crowds 
and then feeding thousands. But do you remember what happened in between the two? Think about the context of this passage. What happened in between those two feedings that are so close together? One, the Pharisees came from Jerusalem, the representatives of the Jewish people and the Jewish religion, and they said, Jesus doesn't fit. He's not clean. The Jews rejected him. And then a Canaanite woman came and trusted in Jesus and said, I'm just here for the crumbs that fall from the table because you're sufficient and glorious. See, there's a movement in this text from the Jews who are rejecting the message to the Gentiles who will ultimately receive it. So we read this in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Jesus, again, likewise, he said this in chapter 14. Again, we read, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Can you, I mean... My, I have a daughter that just uh, went into high school this year, and she's uh, suffering with the reality that lectures, classes, lessons now get longer and longer. And I'm like, don't worry, college is still to come. Like, they just, at university, they just get longer and longer. These people have been with Jesus for three days, not even eating, but hanging on his every word. So Jesus has compassion on them. I'm, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few small fish. You're picking up on the repetition. Jesus again has compassion. The disciples again don't get it. Why do the disciples not get it? Like they just went through this, right? I think part of the reason they don't get it is because as much as Jesus is healing the Gentiles, it's impossible to conceive of the reality that Jesus would now feed and eat with Gentiles. Especially if they misunderstood the whole narrative of what just happened with the Canaanite woman that came. And Jesus, Jesus, do you remember what he said? He said, I don't have bread for the dogs. I have bread for the children. So maybe they heard that and thought that means Jesus just wants to bless the Jews. And they missed that what Jesus wanted them to see was the faith of the woman that opened the floodgates of heaven to bring the blessing to all nations. Well, he fed the Jews, but he's not going to feed the Gentiles. Oh, yeah, he is. Even here on the wrong side of the sea, Jesus is able to provide. Jesus is the Niagara Falls of blessing that's pouring out and pouring out. And Israel is a bucket. It's being filled to overflow. The cup of David is running over and the blessing is pouring out onto the table, down over the edges of the table. It is feeding and giving to all who thirst so that they are satisfied. The stories seem so similar. But there's blessings here as well. Or, or there's differences here as well. You notice the numbers are a little bit different. Remember when Jesus was feeding the people in the Jewish context, there were five loaves of bread. And when they gathered up the remains, there were 12 baskets full. Again, reminding them for each of the disciples there was sufficient provision, but also representing the, the, the creation of the new covenant Israel, the new people of Israel, the 12 tribes. They, this was fulfilling this reality. But now here, as Jesus feeds the Gentiles, there are seven loaves. Did you notice that said twice? Seven loaves, seven loaves, and then a third time, seven baskets. Full. There's three sevens. Matthew's trying to make a point. 
7, representing the fullness of creation, all that God did in creation, the fullness of the blessing going to the Gentiles. And at first glance in English, it looks like there's a little bit less. Like, Well, there's a little bit less that they picked up at the end. So maybe his provision for the Gentiles is a little bit less, or he's a little bit less willing. But what we miss in English is this. The word for baskets in the Jewish context was like a lunch pail, like your kids would take to school. Here, we're talking about laundry hampers. This is what the Gentiles would use to carry stuff around. There's seven big baskets full of bread. There is an abundance, an overflowing abundance after all have eaten and are satisfied. Jesus brings with his kingdom Blessings that satisfy for all who come. For all who are hungry, here is provision. It's a question. It, you, you sometimes I, I wonder, you know, when I'm reading passages like this, like if, if Jesus were to show up on the wrong side of the sea here in, in the GTA, so if he were to show up, what would he look at and see us hungry for? What is it that we're lacking, that we're longing for, that would stir up his compassion for us? I think by and large, we're hungry for a place to belong. We, we feel isolated, lonely. We're hungry for a purpose. I want to make a difference. I, I, want to, I want to do something with my life. I want to make an impact. I feel like I'm wandering aimlessly. And so we look for these things in the various communities that we belong to. We're trying to find a place. And we look for these things, a purpose in, our, in, in places that were never designed to, to fulfill that need. We go to work and we think, my job will fulfill me. My job will give me satisfaction. My, my job will give me a purpose in the world. No, it won't. It wasn't designed to do that, and so we continue to hunger for these things. I also think Jesus would find us hungry for justification. What do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean hungry to be proved right, to be proved sufficient in the evaluation, in the eyes of others. I mean, maybe as a culture, by and large, we've kind of moved on from the God thing. More and more people are saying, I don't know, I don't know what I believe, I don't really believe in anything. Maybe I don't believe in God, I don't know. And so we don't so much often, as a lost culture, live for the approval of God, longing for the approval of God, but we've replaced that with the approval of other people. We need to know what kind of language we're supposed to use so that we don't use the wrong words. We're supposed to know what type of pronouns we're supposed to use in which situations we're supposed to know what are the right causes what are the wrong causes am I supposed to sell my Dr. Seuss or, or not what, what am I supposed to do there's this panic to prove that we are keeping up with this ever shifting morality so that no one's going to look at us and cancel us because we've fallen behind the righteousness of our day we know that we're deficient and so we live with a sense of it an awareness of it always trying to compensate for it. We've fallen short of a standard. We know that. The world's standard, which is ever moving. God's standard, if you take the time to read it, you fall short of all of his commandments. Even your own standard. If you go back and think about advice and counsel that you've given to friends, that was good and wise and right counsel, and you believed it, 
and then you didn't live up to your own advice. There's no standard that's been set for us that we've ever met. We fall short in every way. Think about the provision that's been made for us in Christ. Who came and perfectly satisfied every one of the righteous demands of God's law. Who perfectly endured the punishment that we deserved for every law we've broken and every standard we've failed to meet. In his death, in his life and in his death, Jesus has provided for us all that we need. He has become our bread, our sufficiency. We who are hungry, have found satisfaction in Christ. It's, it's as if, it's as if we, we, you know, maybe we filled out a test, like if you ever did this in school. Some, you know, sometimes you're, you're trying to do one of those multiple choice tests and you have, if you're like me, you have no idea. So you just kind of like, well, I guess I'll make a pattern. So you're filling out that card and you're filling in like A, B, C, D, and then you go, oh, let's go backwards, you know. And, and so you're just here, and you're going to get some right, right? And some of us just kind of have lived our lives that way. It's like I'm swinging and missing, and sometimes I get things right, and sometimes I get things wrong. We fill out the test and we hand it in. But here's the thing what Jesus has done is he has gone through and filled out a test perfectly. And he's written his name on our test and our name on his test. So that he takes the fail. He goes to the cross. And all of a sudden we find our names on the honor roll as if we performed perfectly. He has provided for all who will put their trust in him. If you are hungry to measure up, hungry to meet a standard, hungry to be accepted and to know that God is pleased with you, there is provision for you in Christ. But we said that we're hungry not, not just to, for justification, but we're hungry for a place and a purpose too. And friend, listen, I want to argue that Jesus has given us that too. Here, here's the third thing we see from this text is this. When the church makes Christ's compassion her mission, Jesus provides. Here, here's, our, here's our place in God's people, in the church, one of his disciples. And here's our purpose, his compassion for a hurting and lost world. He has satisfied what we are hungry for in giving us a church, in giving us a mission. He has given us a place and a purpose. Now notice this, in both feedings, in the one in chapter 14 and the one here in chapter 15, you notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus doesn't get up with the baskets and start walking around and handing them out to all the people. He does not do that. That is on purpose. He gives it to the disciples and says, you feed them. Because moving forward from here, wherever the gospel goes, on whatever side of the tracks, to whatever people, it will be the disciples that carry the mission forward. The disciples that go forward with the bread that the world is hungry for. You know what the Great Commission is? The end of Matthew's gospel when he commands us to go to make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is Jesus looking at people on both sides of the tracks 
being stirred with compassion, and then looking at us as disciples and saying, go feed them. You know, you know how close this comes to the heartbeat that we have as a church? We, we exist to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and take the bread and the healing to the hurting and the hungry. We exist to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great com- c- Commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the very heart of Christ who is stirred with compassion to go and to take the good news to them. And why do we do it? We do it all for the glory of God, which is when they receive it and are satisfied, they give glory to the God of Israel. Take a step back and and reflect on a question here for a minute. When would a church not know God's provision? If we are his disciples, when would it be true that he would not provide for us? And when I say provision, I mean maybe in terms of people or maybe in terms of resources or maybe in terms of vision for us as a community. Let's reflect on that for a minute. Because twice now we've seen Jesus in the wilderness making bread to provide for thousands of people. But there was another time when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was asked to make bread. But he refused. Because it wasn't according to the commandments of God and it was for self-interest. It was for himself. Maybe, Maybe if you pictured the disciples sitting alone, not surrounded by the hurting and the hungry, the disciples sitting alone in the wilderness with Jesus, wanting simply a nice steak dinner for themselves. And they didn't plan, they didn't think about it, they're just like, I just want a nice meal. Jesus, Jesus, cook us up something, we know you can do it. Does Jesus provide? It's when the church makes Christ's compassion her mission That Christ the Master provides for His servants. That's when He provides. Now when we think about this world outside the church doors, going out to the wrong side of the tracks, the wrong side of the sea, to the people who are unclean, it often seems overwhelming to us, right? That might be because we've forgotten His power. The power he has to heal. The power that he showed us when he conquered the grave and rose on the third day. Or it might be because we've forgotten the promise of provision. That the one who sends us to go feed the crowds is going to provide more than enough bread for us as we do it. Maybe it's because we've forgotten his compassion. That he himself longs for us to do it more than we even want to do it. But we're in a pandemic. Should we stop going to our neighbors? Should we stop going to our coworkers? Should we stop compassionate gospel work? Is there less need now? Less hunger? Less thirst? Less hurting? Less brokenness? When it feels overwhelming, it's because we've forgotten both his power, his provision, his compassion, and his commission. Friends, here's here's some really good news for us. 
We don't need to go to the other side of the world to do any of this. For Jesus, it was just a little boat ride across the lake and then back in verse 39. For us, it might simply be a trip from our cubicle over a couple to the person on the other side of the divider. Maybe it's a trip to the neighbor across the street or a few doors down. The ones who in our minds we can see and we know are hurting and broken, but it feels like they're on the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus says to us as a church, I have compassion on them. You feed them. Friends, as we do, watch. Watch how the Lord provides. When we as a people make his compassion our mission, he will provide and he will be glorified. We will be satisfied and the world will be blessed. May God make it so. Let's pray.